Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome back to The Victory Kitchen. This is episode 17, War and Spice. Sadly, this is the last episode of season two. But as I take a little break, I will be working on my writing. I'm hoping to publish my second World War II fiction. It's called Through Fields of War. It's a home front story about a farmer and a school teacher and a conscientious objector. I am really excited about this book. It has been a long time in the making, and I really look forward to finally getting it published and being a second installment in my Homefront series. And my goal is to have that published by July, uh, and that is also the same month that I'm hoping to get back to the podcast. So in the meantime, I won't disappear. Uh, I will definitely be active on Instagram and Facebook, so you can you know, follow me there to find out the things I'm up to, stuff I'm finding in research, and of course, plenty of ration cooking because that never stops. <laughs> Today's episode is all about spices and flavorings in wartime. And this is a topic that was just kind of an idea I was hoping to get to sometime, but I was wanting to do something different and special for the last episode. And the more I dug into spice availability in wartime, just the more fascinating things that I found. There were a lot of spice companies around in the early 1940s, but not just those that sold spices. There were also the spice importers, the spice millers. There was just a whole network of spice-related companies that got spices from where they came from around the world to the grocery store shelves. A lot of the familiar spice companies that we recognize today have been around since even before World War II. So companies like Schilling, Watkins, and McCormick, those are three really big spice companies. They had lots of products back then. And of course, there were a plethora of other spice companies, like I came across Ben-Hur and the Baltimore Spice Company. They are more local for me, and they were famous and still are famous for their Old Bay seasoning. But back then it was known as the delicious brand shrimp and crab seasoning. And another one I want to mention is Crescent. They're the ones that made the famous Mapleine. Um, there was the Warren Company. I don't know. There was just so many. Now, a really cool resource that I have are these Watkins Company almanacs and home books. It's called Watkins Almanac and Home Book. I have an issue from every year of the war and it's very interesting to see how they changed. But I really wanted to read off this list of popular spices that this company provided. And I think it's a good gauge to see you know, which spices were the most popular with Americans at this time. I even came across a newspaper article saying that there were 30 spices that Americans used frequently in their cooking. 
There was a list at the back of the book that you could tick off the boxes of the products that you wanted because Watkins offered way more than just spices, um, which I will get into that later. But um, the Watkins man would come and take your order and then he would bring it back for you later. So the spices that they had available were allspice, celery salt, chili powder, cinnamon, cloves, garlic seasoning, ginger, mixed spices, mustard, nutmeg, onion seasoning, paprika, pepper, poultry seasoning, red pepper, sage, and a spice blend. They also had different flavors and extracts, uh, and these come into play for the war as well. So before the war had really taken hold, they had almond extract, banana flavor, black walnut flavor, lemon extract, maple flavor, mixed fruit flavor, and mixed fruit was a blend of orange, pineapple, strawberry, banana, and almond flavors. Then they had orange extract, peppermint extract, pineapple flavor, vanilla, and imitation vanilla flavor. So, I mean, all of those, of course, are familiar. We, You probably use a lot of these in your own kitchen. But the story of spices and flavorings in World War II are a little bit similar to the banana story. And so, you know, the obvious thing is transportation would be something that would affect the spices. But it is very different from bananas in the fact that bananas came from one part of the world. That's where we got our bananas, at least. Of course, bananas were available in other places. But for America, we got most of our bananas from Central and South America. When it comes to spices, however... Spices were imported to the United States from all around the world. Now, much like the banana story, there, at least to my knowledge, there has not been a book written about the spice trade in America during World War II. So I turned to the newspapers to kind of piece together a timeline of what was happening with spices in America. So as you can imagine, in January of 1942... At the very beginning of war, there started to be rumors and predictions that there would be shortages of vanilla. But that's it so far, just vanilla. And of the 600,000 pounds of vanilla that America imported yearly, the main source was from the French island of Madagascar. A third of the vanilla that we imported came from Mexico. But as we know from herbs and spices, like depending on where they're grown, they can taste different. So that was the case with vanilla. The Mexican vanilla tasted different from the Madagascar vanilla. And the Madagascar vanilla was the favored flavor in America. Vanilla could be produced synthetically. As, you know, I read in that product list, there was an imitation vanilla already available. And I found in a newspaper article that the most recent development of synthetically produced vanilla Um, is preparing it from the lignite of wood used in paper manufacture. Mmm, yummy. (laughs) Um, And that's just kind of the beginning of the chemistry of imitation flavorings, which I will talk about a little bit later. The shortage of vanilla was a big concern because it wouldn't just impact home cooks, but it would impact bakeries and ice cream shops and manufacturers. So, Can you imagine a world without vanilla ice cream? That would be a sad place, I think. And since vanilla, we know, was the favorite flavor of ice cream of Americans, they would have had a really hard time with that. (laughs) Now, at the same time, 
Interestingly, there were other headlines declaring that there was no shortage of spices likely. So a little bit of contradiction there. In one newspaper, the headline was, No shortage seen likely in spices, but don't waste as flavors come from far away. The subheadline was, Flavors on the table of Mrs. America need not be changed because of any immediate shortage of spices. Provided, of course, that these flavorings are used only as really needed. So they are acknowledging that it's wartime now and spices come from far away. So let's just be using them sparingly just in case. (laughs) It goes on to say that mustard and pepper are the two most used spices in America. The Office of Price Administration estimated there was two years worth of stock of pepper on hand and that the 1941 mustard crop was a good one, so no worries there. They also mentioned cloves, nutmeg, cinnamon, and vanilla. Their use came with a warning. They say, remember that these spices come to you from Zanzibar, from the West Indies, from other distant corners of the globe. They are brought to you in ships, which must also carry strategic war materials. So then the article encourages housewives to think of ways they can stretch the spices they have to use a little bit less of each spice than is called for in the recipe. They finally suggest, and when you've emptied one of those nice spice cans with sprinkler tops, a can that fits into your spice cabinet, maybe you'd better save it. Next year's supply may not come to you in such convenient form. Now this was a very wise prediction of what was to come because tin containers for spices did not stick around during the war. They switched to a cardboard or glass container. And there's quite a few articles that I found later in the war that talk about that very fact. Now, I want to take a really quick break to tell you that, like we can see just from the headlines of the nature of sensationalism and things like that, um, and exaggeration, you kind of have to take these articles with a grain of salt and just realize that fact that they might contradict each other. There might be reasons for that contradiction. We can't really know without really digging deeper. But I am very sure that there is so much more to this spy story than what the newspapers have to tell us. So in May of 1942, there were rumors going around that spices were being rationed. Hmm. Someone wrote into a Q&A column asking about the rumor and how they were supposed to go about buying spices when they only had ration coupons for sugar. The answer was, spices are not being rationed to the consumer, but deliveries to sellers are under limited deliveries. They still may be purchased as needed, but should not be hoarded. Uh Uh-oh, the dreaded H word. Um, Another May article brings up an interesting perspective that even spices teach that isolation is futile. It goes on to declare, America's dinner table, like the living room, isn't going to be the same anymore. There isn't going to be as much sweetness to the food, and those dishes that require sugar will not be as well seasoned as formerly. Day by day, Americans are learning the futility of an isolationist course. They are discovering that the rest of the world is needed to maintain this country's high standards of living. I think this was a very chilling truth for Americans to hear. I know this statement really struck me at the beginning of the war. Well, a lot there was quite a big group of isolationists that were not in favor of joining. They felt that 
the world needed to solve it on their own and were not getting involved. But then there were a lot of people that felt we should be helping. So as we know, when Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, um, we entered the war. And this article is kind of driving home the point that it's futile to think that we can stay isolated from the world in this conflict. And that they are, Americans are learning that the standards of living that they have at that time are dependent on the imports we get from around the world. The article also says that the latest items to go under partial ban are white pepper, allspice, cassia cinnamon, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, and mace. The War Production Board issued restrictions on deliveries, cutting retail by 50%. So already, you know, it hasn't been very long since we entered the war, May of 1942. So already they're cutting spice imports and deliveries. The United States imported 118 million pounds of spices annually, but because of Axis subs and enemy airplanes, that made them no longer available. I think what's really interesting is to know the location of where spices were grown. Like, where were we getting these spices from around the world? The article says uh, that pepper, mustard, cinnamon, vanilla, cloves, nutmeg, and ginger are favorites with American housewives. Only mustard is grown in the United States, most of it originating in California and Montana. Pepper comes almost exclusively from India. Ceylon is the home of the true cinnamon. What many know as cinnamon is cassia, grown in the East Indies and China. All spice and ginger, however, are grown in this hemisphere, coming from Jamaica. There is no probable shortage of vanilla, contrary to many opinions, as the vanilla beans grow in Mexico. Oh, so once again, this conflicting information. Um, I've seen in other articles they talk about that the ginger that we get comes from China. And here it's saying it's coming from Jamaica. Now, they're probably both right. But whatever their sources were, they're writing the article um, was telling them just Jamaica. So... Yeah, it really just depended on the newspaper writer's sources. The article uh, closes by saying, If an American is worried over the losses of spices, let him think of salt. There is plenty of that. In fact, there is so much that a sprinkle may be added to each radio report from Berlin, Tokyo, and Rome. (laughs) I see what they did there. So that's May. A A lot is happening already with spices. And we've only been in the war for six months. Now, in September of 1942, one article claimed that spices were rationed with a headline that said, Spices rationed, but foods in Carolina still excellent. It mentions that the War Production Board issued a conservation order number M127, which restricted the sale of cinnamon, nutmeg, mace, cloves, allspice, ginger, and black and white pepper. The article says it did not mean that these spices were unavailable then or that they would be in the near future. It meant that with restricted use, there would be a sufficient, if not a generous supply on hand for at least some time to come. It also talks about herbs like parsley, thyme, savory, mint, basil, marjoram, tarragon, and sage that are grown by commercial growers and home gardeners in the U.S. and suggests that housewives blend restricted use spices with unrestricted herbs and spices to help them stretch further. So this is an example of kind of a sensationalist headline. (laughs) 
because spices were not rationed. But there was an important distinction between restricted spices and unrestricted spices. So restricted spices were the important ones, which the United States customarily obtained only by importing. And the unrestricted spices were the important unrestricted spices such as mustard and red pepper, which were produced extensively in the United States. And we can add in here also, you know, spices coming from Mexico, like the vanilla beans. And much like bananas, the availability of a lot of these restricted spices fluctuated during the war. So depending on where ships were and what parts of the world and were able to come home, sometimes they brought spices with them. So that, you know, increased what was available. But it was just so hit and miss none of the spice availability could be relied on. Now, we get to mid-war, the beginning of 1943. This is when we start to see newspapers abuzz with news about imitation spices and flavorings and store ads reminding people that spices aren't rationed. It's like they had to keep reminding people about this room false rumor, like, no, guys, they're not rationed. Now, I found this really fascinating article called Your Favorite Flavor in the Birmingham News Sun from January of 1943. The headline reads, Your Favorite Flavor. It may be artificial during wartime, but it tastes just as good. Um, It goes on to say, Miracles take shape under our very noses. Favorite flavors of the world, be it leaf, bark, or berry, are manufactured synthetically to pour out of test tubes. Nutmeg and cinnamon are scarce on the spice shelf, but magicians of the laboratories reproduce these flavors in the form of extracts. If the war is a long war and present stocks of black pepper should eventually be depleted, we can splash a black pepper flavoring into stews and gravies. And pepper did indeed become quite scarce. This was the biggest worry. There was advice to housewives to use other American-grown peppers like red pepper, cayenne pepper, or chili powder. Uh, But Gustav Brunn of the Baltimore Spice Company came up with an imitation black pepper out of buckwheat that became really popular. He was also the creator of Old Bay Seasoning, which I mentioned earlier. I love this article because it really celebrates the science of solving a desperate problem. Americans don't like bland food, I guess, and they really wanted their spices. And scientists were part of solving that problem. Uh, This article, Your Favorite Flavor, goes on to say, Now, when bunches of bananas are missing at the grocer's, reach instead for a bottle of banana flavoring. A few drops in the custard and there is banana's exotic taste tantalizing the palate. Few fresh pineapples are coming. Canned supplies are cut, but pineapple's flavor has been captured in bottles to give this sweet fragrance to sauces and puddings. The sage shortage has had the meat packers crazy. Now a sage flavoring bats out a home run. Swedish cooks bemoan the scarcity of cardamom for pastries and breads. But here comes the chemist with a satisfactory cardamom essence, not imitation, but made from the true oil. And it goes on to talk about the coffee and chocolate shortages and that they have an extract for those too. So I just, <laughs> this article is so great because it is making these scientists the war heroes of the home front. And I just really love that. Now, the process of making the extracts and synthetic flavorings is really interesting 
But I will post about that on my blog just for time's sake. Um, an interesting note is that the black walnut extract came about during World War I. They cut down a huge amount of walnut trees to make the gun stocks. And so as a result, there was a black walnut shortage and that they created a black walnut extract because of that. So that extract's been around for quite some time at this point. All in all, this article discusses, besides the extracts I already read about, vanilla, citrus, mint, wintergreen, rose, almond, liquor extracts like brandy and rum, vegetable, onion and garlic, and herbs. All these extracts that they created. The article ends on a wary note saying that bulk sales of these extracts cannot increase materially as alcohol required for extracts is rationed to exact amount used in pre-war years. So while they had all these fantastic new flavorings, they were really restricted by how much alcohol was available to make these extracts. So, uh, so frustrating. <laughs> now I have to take a little quick detour to mention this interesting report from Canada just because it's so bizarre and more than likely happened in the U.S. as well, although I didn't find any articles talking about it. In January of 1944, an article headlined, Shortage of Liquor Blamed for Rush on Flavoring Extracts. It reported that due to the government shortage of liquor for drinking, as well as the illegal kind, brought an increase of men drinking flavoring extracts, shaving lotion, and rubbing alcohol. So some of the flavorings in some areas were being bought for consumption, not flavoring. The article came with a warning that the alcohol used for the base and flavorings was denatured alcohol for the purpose of making it unfit for consumption. And if consumed was, quote, inviting a trip to the coroners, close quote. <laughs> a large amount of alcohol was used in munitions, so there was only so much of what was left to go around. Wow. <laughs> kind of feel for those guys but at the same time I mean that's dangerous um it was not meant for drinking <laughs> just for baking with where the alcohol is burned off so very interesting situation there now back to the article talking about making the flavoring extracts since the article mentioned citrus extracts I just wanted to quickly mention that creating citrus extracts was never a problem. There wasn't a shortage of citrus flavors because we grew all these citrus fruits. So oranges, limes, lemons, that was never a problem. Now, I was really curious about this sage shortage. Oh, that's hard to say, <laughs> sage shortage. Because before in another article, it was talking about how home growers and commercial growers were growing sage, but apparently it wasn't enough um, to satisfy the demand of sage in this country. So I decided to go on a little hunt through my Watkins almanacs because um, I have one from each year of the war. And I looked at their spice availability list. Sage was available in 1942, but then it disappears. It's not in the list from 1943 and 1944. But then it makes a reappearance on the list in 1945. So this is really cool confirmation that the Watkins company couldn't get enough sage to keep it on their list for their consumers. So really interesting. Another really fascinating article that I found was 
called Martha Washington used lemon peel and violet syrup in her famous recipes. This came from the Salt Lake Tribune in February of 1943. And it talks about how women in World War II took a hint from Martha Washington, which I love that. It starts off by talking about Martha Washington's famous receipts using flowers and herbs in her cooking. Then the article says, Resourceful American women today, faced with a shortage of flavoring extracts, are turning again to homegrown herbs and such natural flavor agents as citrus fruits. The rest of the article talks about the use of lemon in Martha Washington's cooking and how American women can take inspiration from some of Martha's recipes and using lemon. They also include a recipe for lemon sauce that can save on cream. Uh, the sauce could be served with your favorite pudding, whether rice, bread, or steamed pudding. It could be served with cobblers, apple pie, baked apple dumplings, hot gingerbread, or with leftover cake. So this was a whole different take on stretching seasonings by learning to use a new technique altogether. So they were drawing on historical recipes to help them through this seasoning crisis. And I think that's so fabulous. Now, by April of 1943, spice imports were sharply reduced, and there was an effort to stretch remaining stocks of spices that were available. There was actually an increase of allspice, even though it was one of the restricted spices, they had a huge stock of allspice. And I found a couple articles urging housewives to use allspice more instead of cinnamon. It was recommended to use three quarters teaspoon of allspice to replace each one teaspoon of cinnamon. The only reason I can think of why there would be an increase of allspice seasoning, or at least there was just a lot of it, was allspice is one of those things you don't use a lot of, um, at least not any. I mean, I've been baking a really long time and not a lot of recipes call for allspice. And even looking through all my vintage cookbooks, allspice is not like one of the top seasonings that's used. Usually it's like cinnamon so or nutmeg. Cinnamon and nutmeg were huge. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's why they just had a surplus of it because it just a little goes a long way. But that's just me, my speculations talking. <laughs> Earlier, I talked about an increase of imitation flavorings coming onto the market, like there's those rumors. Um, so in June of 1943, we start to see talk of the, these synthetic spices hitting the market. This one article says, it's definitely regarded as a war baby, but manufacturers of synthetic spices claim their new products will satisfy America's jaded tastes till we take back the spice islands. With our supply of flavoring extracts cut to 20% of normal, scientists started compounding flavors that would replace the ones lost to war. Already on the market is a cinnamon flavor, a clever blend of certain aldehydes and powder base, which is used in bakery and other products. Also in the experimental stages, Department of Agriculture authorities report are nutmeg, anise, caraway, and even imitation chocolate flavors. <laughs> I think this is hilarious that they refer to America's jaded tastes. So these amazing scientists come to the rescue with their imitation spices. Now, I was able to go on eBay and just take a look around to see what kind of vintage uh, wartime spices were out there for sale. I mean, vintage spice tins are pretty fun and collectible, uh, but I wanted to see what was in these imitation spices because some articles talk about it, like this one mentions 
that cinnamon was created with aldehydes and powder base. Now, an aldehyde is the scent or flavor part of an organic compound. So those things are extracted to make like perfumes and they used that in making imitation spices and flavorings. So of the tins that I found online of these wartime imitation spices, this is what's in the imitation black pepper. Cereal, capsicum, essential oils, and it's artificially colored. Now the capsicum, I think, is what makes the pepper spicy. And each company kind of had their own way of uh, making these imitation spices. Their Ben-Hur brand of imitation cinnamon the ingredients are specially prepared cereal base, cinnamic aldehyde, and other artificial flavoring. That's really vague. <laughs> and then Warren's brand of imitation nutmeg was composed of processed cereal, and in parentheses it says rye base, terpenes, alcohols, esters, and ethers. Also very vague. <laughs> Now, for an imitation ginger that I found, it has essential oils, eugenol, capsicum, cereal, and caramel color. So that capsicum comes up again because ginger is typically pretty spicy. Um, so that makes sense that, that would be in there. Um, really interesting. And so a common denominator in these imitation spices is the cereal base. You know, they had to make it a powder and so they used grains as the base and then they flavored those grains in their powder form. So really, really interesting. I found in a Canadian newspaper them talking about imitation spices made with cornmeal, cocoa shells, or cereal base flavored with essential oils. These were expensive to make but according to them the flavoring qualities were reported to be exceptionally good. Now, I mentioned this Canadian article also because of this line in the article. It says, Canada's supply of spices comes through the Combined Food Board in cooperation with the United States, where the same restrictive measures were introduced some time ago. Now, what they're referring to is the restriction on grinding of a number of spices, including pepper, to conserve supplies. A spice can store longer in its whole state as opposed to after it's ground, much like coffee. So if you want to store it longer, you don't grind it until you're ready to use it or in this case to sell it. And there were restrictions on that to kind of eke out the supply available. And Canada and the United States were working together because we were in the same boat, you know. In another paper, I found an article saying that the spice company A&P reported that cinnamon oil and grains blended together made a synthetic product similar to pre-war quality. Hmm. <laughs> These products sound pretty good, and it sounds like they were a valuable replacement for the real thing. By November of 1943, an article in the Town Talk newspaper had good news that importers and wholesale grocers were forecasting plenty of the spices needed Thanksgiving and Christmas, except for black pepper. Sorry. <laughs> um, the, the article says, importers said there would be an abundance of mace, cinnamon, and nutmeg, which was important for eggnog. Um, the reason 
was that more spices were coming in from the West Indies to make up for those lost when the Japanese occupied those Asian areas from which the spices were uh, originally obtained. I also came across an ad in the Great Falls Tribune from November of 43 for Crescent Spices. In fact, I found quite a few of Crescent imitation spice ads. So one of the ads says... Some spices are scarce because of the war. This means that all over the country, folks who use and like spices have been able to get less and less. But you folks who live here in the Northwest don't need to give up making your favorite spice-rich cakes, pies, and cookies. For Crescent Manufacturing Company Seattle has created new imitation spices to take the place of war-shortened spices in the blue and white cartons. True spices will be back. After the war, you'll again be able to get full-flavored true crescent spices. Until the day of victory, you can use crescent imitation spices in spiced foods with the knowledge that you're getting as nearly perfect imitation spices as can be made. And where there is no scarcity, you can, of course, still get crescent true spices. And they include a recipe for gingerbread deluxe. I really like these ads because... They don't shy away from the fact that spices can't be obtained and that they have created a solution. Unlike the Watkins Almanacs, they don't mention anything about there being spice shortages. They make very little mention of the war. And um, it's very interesting that they don't mention some spices just aren't as easily obtained. Now, as for the Crescent Company... In another of their ads, they had all kinds of ways to perk up your meals with their spices and extracts, including this one for biscuits. Try a new biscuit trick. Use butter-flavored shortening to make them. Serve plenty of butter spread with them. Just add half teaspoon of crescent imitation butter flavor with color to your favorite butter stretching method. Luscious butter flavor and color. Now, the name of this extract was imitation butter with color. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about it in the past where margarine, if you bought margarine, you had to mix in the yellow tablet to make it look like butter. And so that was kind of the function. They have this butter flavor and you're adding the color with it as well. Now, I was really fascinated by this, but also kind of weirded out. (laughs) Using this to make biscuits, I was like, uh... I don't know. So using their little recipe, I made a butter stretcher recipe. In the past, I've made one with gelatin, which I was not a fan of the texture of that, but that was a common one that Knox Gelatin Company promoted a lot. But in today's cookbook feature cookbook, I took one of their other butter stretcher recipes, and that was where you mix half butter, half shortening. And then using this recipe... I added some imitation butter flavor. Today's butter flavor does not come with color, (laughs) that yellow color dye. So I added my own color dye. And what's exciting is that I use this in conjunction with all the featured recipes for today's episode. I will tell you all about it then. And it is really cool. All right, next, the ad also mentions that to season your holiday pumpkin pie, you can use your own blend of crescent cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg, and ginger, or use crescent imitation pumpkin pie spice, spelled P-U-N apostrophe K apostrophe N. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just think that's hilarious. They also suggest that you can even rub the butter-flavored shortening on your Thanksgiving turkey for a point-saving way of adding flavor. Yay! <laughs> Another of their ads proclaimed, No bananas? You can still have pie. Just add one teaspoon crescent vanilla and three-quarter teaspoon crescent imitation banana flavoring to the cream pie filling. Yummy pineapple pie without pineapple. To cream pie filling, add one teaspoon crescent imitation pineapple flavoring. So quite a few of these ads out there and I don't know, more power to them. I think it was great that they were advertising all of these solutions using their products. It was very smart marketing. I was totally sold. <laughs> now amidst the angel choirs singing praises over these imitation spices, it's important to note that a Canadian newspaper reported in December of 1943 that their government had placed a price ceiling on imitation spices. This was an important move. Due to the spice shortage, these imitation spices were a premium replacement product and a price ceiling kept consumers from being gouged by the grocers and or the spice companies producing these products. Now, I couldn't find any information on whether the American government did the same but other spices like black pepper were under a price ceiling. I found a Kansas City Times article in August of 44 that was titled A Deadlock on Pepper. Supply is tied up by dispute over ceiling. With importers refusing to sell at present levels, half the stores here have none on the shelves. So the spice merchants were upset with the price ceiling, saying it was too low and that shipping costs were higher than the price ceiling, so the merchants weren't letting the black pepper out of their warehouses out of protest. The article also says that the War Food Administration had been arguing since June of 43 over the ceiling price. But according to authoritative sources, the U.S. had sufficient stores of white and black pepper to last until the start of 1946. So this elusive black pepper that everyone was desperate for, now we know where it was. <laughs> um... Yeah, very complicated situation. In another paper, I found a little report stating that a wartime prices and trade board order number A993 on November 26 fixes minimum prices of imitation spices at the maximum applicable to the sale of the corresponding ground pure spice. In other words, the minimum price of the imitation spice was set at the maximum price of the corresponding pure spice. I don't know if that was helpful or not. <laughs> now, because of the scarcity of some spices, there was quite a bit of advice about keeping it. Newspapers explained to consumers that spices only had six months shelf life, so it didn't do any good to hoard them. Spices should also be kept away from heat and light, and one article suggested that spices will keep better if it is transferred from wartime cardboard containers to tight tins or small glass screw top jars. Now, this is just like I talked about before, that once it's in its powder form, it will degrade more quickly. There's really no point in hoarding it. And I like that they mentioned that these wartime cardboard containers aren't really the best way to store them. So hopefully you saved your pre-war spice tin and you can transfer the contents into the better tin or in this case they mentioned small glass screw top jars so your you know mason jar that's sitting around a lot of people do that today but if it's in glass it's especially important to keep it away from light 
Now we move into the latter part of the war in 1944. And this is where we finally start to see an end in sight. One January 1944 headline declared, Spice supplies more adequate than for over two years, and sums it up this way. The year after the Japanese attack, certain spices almost disappeared from the market. In the second year, supplies increased, but were still low. And now in the third year, there are ample stocks of everything except cinnamon. So there's that roller coaster going on. Uh, by February in 1944, I found another article that mentions cloves, ginger, and allspice are nearly back to pre-war levels. And that spices were still not rationed except indirectly. And as they were feeling confident it was the last year of the war, it was looking good that they wouldn't need to ration food seasonings. They report receiving their first shipments of Zanzibar cloves in a year and a half. It says, Cloves from the Netherlands Indies no longer arrive, nor have we been able to get the expected shipment from Madagascar. However, in the case of cloves, we have been fortunate in having good stocks here so that no shortage has been felt. Cloves is another one of those spices that's very strong. And so I think, you know, you just need less of it. I think it's very interesting that they're so confident that this is the last year of the war. And they're pretty close with that estimation. I also like how this article explains the process of how spices came as imports in the first place because we weren't the only country out for these spices. The five leading imported spices, which were cinnamon, ginger, mace, nutmeg, and allspice, along with cloves, white, and black pepper, were under the control or protection of the international allocation system through the combined food board. Requirements of each allied nation were figured out and allocations made on the basis of their expected imports and stocks in storage. Then the import section of the Food Distribution Administration would arrange through the War Shipping Administration for freight space for these available spices. Then quotas were issued to qualified spice importers and that was regulated domestically by Federal Distribution Order 19, which fixed the quota percentages to the amounts during 1941, so pre-war amounts. Now, of our share of these spices, we had to cover Lend-Lease, the military and other government procurement programs, as well as civilian needs. So it wasn't just like all of the needs that we had, which we had to kind of distribute into the different channels, but there was like all of our other allies that were needing the spices too. So it was this big cooperation of making sure the spices that were available around the world were getting to where they needed to be. In April of 1944, there was a very fascinating article complaining that the U.S. relied too heavily on imported spices and vowing to not let a spice shortage happen again. It talks about how we were relying so much on these spice imports that it was crippling us, um, as they could see in wartime. Like, there were so many spices not available, or at least the stocks are really low. So because of that, there were people making an effort to plant these spices in the United States and grow them in the United States. And the spices that were grown were far from adequate. Now, in the article, it says the important thing is that we have the plants, shrubs and trees started. We know that it will be 
possible for this country to become independent of imports of spices if we so desire. No doubt close of the war will make the spice producing business highly competitive. The peoples of the Indies will be ready to offer us products at prices lower than we can produce them, for their labor will cost less than ours. It may be necessary for economic and diplomatic reasons to return to our old sources for a large part of our supplies. We should, however, make certain that we preserve our newly developed independent sources of these commodities. So it's acknowledging that, hey, maybe we'll have to go back to the way that things were before because, you know, diplomatic reasons, economic reasons, but we shouldn't give up on these independent sources that we can try and provide for ourselves. It's a really interesting way of thought. Now, by June of 1944, some spice imports were beginning to perk up and we were able to bring in more spices because of improved shipping conditions. By September of 1944, there was one tiny report stating that spices still weren't rationed and the market was well supplied. All varieties of spices were selling from about 7 cents to 15 cents a tin. There's an article from November of 44 that adds some weight to that earlier article complaining that we rely on spice imports too much. It reports that ginger grows well in Florida. It says ginger lovers in Florida have had pretty rough going since the war tied up many of the ships once used to import the spice from China and the Caribbean islands. So the University of Florida's agricultural experiment station has come to the rescue with advice and directions which should make it a snap to grow the plant in this state. And then it describes what type of soil is ideal, how to plant, harvest, and cure the ginger root to then use for consumption. So once again, science comes to the rescue. Yippee! (laughs) Now, I'm curious if this is still a thing. Is there a lot of ginger growing in Florida? I think that would be really cool to find out. Now we move into the end of the war in 45. So finally, in May of 1945... An article declares that spice imports from Asia are nearly normal as a result of Allies' victories in the Pacific. So the war is winding down and the U.S. was months away from ending the war at this point. The Tampa Bay Times reported in September of 1945 that America's pepper shakers may begin to fill up again with the real article within nine months. They were expecting shipments from the Netherlands Indies with black and white pepper, cinnamon and nutmeg, and mace while imports for ginger, sesame seed, mustard seed, and cassia were expected from China. The most looked forward to spices were the two big ones, black pepper and cinnamon. So much for uh, mustard. I guess that wasn't a a problem anymore. (laughs) It was really cinnamon. They want their black pepper and cinnamon back. You know, on the surface, this sounds great. But it was important to keep in mind that many countries were heavily burdened by the war, And some industries couldn't bounce back that fast. One article mentions that uh, initial inquiries have indicated that the staffs of Chinese spice exporting firms are more or less intact and ready to do business. I think that's really important to remember. Um, And it was important for Americans to acknowledge that while they may not have been as affected because war never really reached their shores, um, other countries were really heavily impacted and just getting back into business was kind of a big feat for them. The final word about spices comes from the Montgomery Advertiser in December of 1945. It takes a completely different stance from the article I read earlier pushing for U.S. spice independence. This article was reminding Americans of the vital importance of imports and exports. 
It says, for most of us, the inability to buy things we want because of the stop in imports has produced nothing more than slight inconveniences or a less trim and fetching appearance about the ankles. We like to buy things, quote, made in America. And that is good, for what is made in America is usually soundly made and carefully designed in good value. But our intelligence reminds us that it is necessary to buy the spices and perfumes and rubber of other nations, the raw products and the machine products as well, so that they, in turn, may have the credits with which to buy the cotton, which we must export, the machine tools and automobiles and other products which are enlarged factory plant will presently be running off the assembly lines at a pace undreamed of in the good old days before 1939. A few items marked made in Mexico or Canadian manufacturer in the marketplaces of America make it possible for the shops of those nations to offer bigger assortments of goods made in America. This quote really struck me. It was kind of everything that I learned in college from Economics 101 bundled in into one paragraph. And I just have to say, this is a plug for anyone planning on going to college sometime in the future, that of all the college classes that was valuable to me, the Economics 101 was the most valuable. I have used it so much in just everyday life, but also as I've studied history. My understanding of basic economics has made a world of difference in understanding these complex situations in World War II. So even if it's not required, I really recommend that you take an Econ 101 class because it is valuable in today and in studying history. And I really like that this article is helping Americans understand how important and vital the import-export system is. We can love our Made in America things, but we need to export and import in order for other countries to be able to give us the things that we need. And it's just a beautiful system when it's working. So to quickly sum everything up, Americans loved their spices and flavorings. And while there had been some imitation flavorings already by the time World War II came around, it's safe to say that the birth of imitation spices and flavorings was in World War II. And it's because of the hard work of scientists uh, developing those spices so Americans could still have those flavors that they loved so much. So hats off to you, scientists. You've done us proud. Today's cookbook feature is Watkins Cookbook from 1945. At least my issue is from 1945. Um, they have various issues. Now, I mentioned the Watkins Company a couple times before, and they had their own cookbook. And this is a really terrific book in the fact that it is so thick. A lot of product companies would offer pamphlets as part of promoting their product, but Watkins had an entire cookbook. It's pretty long, over 280 pages. And I'm featuring this particular cookbook because surprise, Watkins is a spice company. Well, they actually offered quite a lot of other things um, among spices. 
They had household medicines, toilet soaps, toilet articles, household aids, cleansers, insecticides, mineral compounds, veterinary preparations, um, everything to help on the home and the farm. Those are the, the consumers that they appealed to. And their system for selling was through a Watkins representative. So the Watkins man was, uh, you know, these men that went around and they sold their products to individual households. This system is kind of still in place today. They have Watkins representatives that you can buy their products through. Of course, in the cookbook, they focus on the flavor extracts and the spices. And they also had like baking powder and cream of tartar and things like that. So really interesting company. I'll have uh, some links in my resources where you can learn more about this company. Now in this cookbook, they have all kinds of recipes. They even have, this may not come as a surprise, a section on health at the beginning, (laughs) like so many wartime cookbooks did. This cookbook has all the categories you could want in a cookbook from bread and soups, cheese and egg dishes, different meats like fish and poultry, then of course salads and vegetables, and then all the desserts from puddings, cakes, pastries, and frozen delights, Um, even beverages, which is always a fun section. Um, And then they have food for invalids. They've got variety meats, sugar substitutes, and then canning and jelly making. So really just everything you could want. Now, I was a little overwhelmed in deciding, man, what do I make to really showcase some spices? But what I decided to focus on was toast. (laughs) Now, I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. I have been so fascinated with the pastime of making toast in America from when electric toasters came on the scene you know, 20s and 30s, maybe even earlier than the 20s. But this electric toaster was amazing. And they came up with all kinds of recipes using this toast. The tabletop toaster became a fixture of American homes. And in our old house um, that we moved from a couple years ago, there was this very oddly placed socket in our dining room. It was like at table height. And when I started researching wartime recipes, it just dawned on me. Extension of the house that had the kitchen and dining room was built around 30s or 40s. Having it at tabletop level made complete sense once I understood that there was these tabletop appliances. They were designed specifically to be beautiful and like the center of your table while making these delicious meals. So toasters, waffle irons, (laughs) um... Uh, It was just really a fascinating thing to learn. So the Watkins cookbook does not disappoint. I made six toast recipes. (laughs) Now, it's not as intense as it sounds. I just made one homemade loaf of bread. And these toast recipes are really just the spreads for the toast. So I made, first up was cinnamon toast classic, classic toast recipe. When I made this cinnamon toast recipe, it just made me question my whole life of toast making. 
<laughs> because it was amazing. It was so good. And I just was like, wow, I, I've been wasting so much time making subpar cinnamon toast. Where, what is wrong with me? <laughs> this cinnamon toast, you just take two teaspoons of butter. Now, this is where that butter stretcher recipe comes in. All the butter I used in these toast spread recipes, I used the butter stretcher stuff that I made with the butter flavoring and the dye. So the two teaspoons butter, three teaspoons powdered sugar, and two teaspoons Watkins cinnamon. So I mix it up. It makes this really thick chocolate looking paste, but it's very smooth because they use powdered sugar. You spread each slice of toast with this cinnamon stuff covering the entire surface of the toast. You place it on a pie tin or a cookie sheet, I guess, and you glaze it in a hot oven. So for all these recipes, I set my oven to 375 and set the timer for three minutes. And that actually seemed to do the job. Like um, they toasted or they broiled uh, perfectly. And you serve this toast hot. This is heaven. This toast is so good. <laughs> so that was very encouraging for my first toast recipe. I was so excited. <laughs> my next toast spread recipe that I tried was a bit trickier. It's Watkins coconut toast. So they did sell their own brand of shredded coconut. I didn't have that. I just had uh, dried coconut flakes. That's not sweetened. That's what I used. You toast white bread lightly on one side. So I did this in the oven. Um, then you cut it in strips. You spread the untoasted slice with equal parts creamed butter, powdered sugar, Watkins shredded coconut, and Watkins cinnamon. And then you brown it in your hot oven. So I did like a tablespoon of each. So that was the equal portions. But that cinnamon just totally overpowered the coconut. I couldn't taste it at all. And I wasn't satisfied with that. And so I made another recipe. I did equal parts powdered sugar, shredded coconut, and butter or butter stretcher. <laughs> and then I just sprinkled, like once I spread that mixture onto the toast, it was like a white creamy color, which was really pretty. Then I just sprinkled cinnamon lightly over the top of that and then browned it in the oven. And oh, that was, wow, so much better. And it was so delicious. Coconut toast is my new favorite thing. <laughs> All right, next up is maple toast. This recipe, you spread buttered toast with soft maple sugar, heat it under the broiler and serve it once. That's it. That was super easy and it was super delicious. It was buttery and mapley and everything good in the morning. <laughs> I also tried butterscotch toast. This is where you cut your bread a quarter inch thick. That's what they say. Toast quickly and spread it once with butter. Sprinkle with a mixture of three tablespoons light brown sugar and one teaspoon Watkins cinnamon. Then you place in the broiling oven to melt the sugar and serve hot. This was also very nice. It wasn't my favorite, but it was still tasty. I think using the brown sugar mixed with the butter and cinnamon, it's yummy. And finally, we come to another amazing recipe, orange toast. You take your day-old bread, the butter stretcher, <laughs> Three tablespoons orange juice, three tablespoons sugar, two tablespoons grated orange rind, and Watkins cinnamon. So you toast one side of the bread. Then you spread the untoasted side with butter 
and then cover with the blended orange mixture. Then you heat the toast in the broiler and serve it once. Now, because that side is not toasted when you put on this orange uh, mixture, it's actually a pretty liquidy mixture because of the orange juice. But with that grated orange rind, it is very powerful, but in a really good way. Um, and it kind of soaks into the bread. I mean, the butter keeps it from soaking too much, but it soaks into the bread and then you broil that side in the oven. Oh, wow. <laughs> My son and I ate this like it disappeared. It was so delicious. And if you're a big orange fan, you have to try this recipe. <laughs> so good. So those are the toast recipes that I tried. My world has completely shifted. I mean, how have my breakfasts been so boring all this time? So if you want to glow up your toast 1940s style, this is the way to do it. Today's story highlight comes from Karen Pittock about her mother, Annette Lapham, and her grandmother, Frances Lapham. She says, my mom used to tell us how my grandma used to sew her clothes out of flour sacks. The feed sacks for the cows could be used for clothing, too. Our family were allowed more gas because we had a dairy farm. The tractors used to harvest hay, corn, rice, and soybeans required it. Mama told me that because they lived on the farm, they never did without food. Mama and great-grandma Ava grew huge victory gardens. Plus, the property had fruit trees and wild dewberries grew all over the property. Now, this farm was in Texas in the greater Houston area. She says that the farm was at one time the largest dairy farm in the greater Houston area. Because cows have to be milked, even if no one is buying the milk, my family would drive their milk truck into the city during the Great Depression and give the milk away. Mama said some of those people were very hard hit and struggled to put food on the table for their families. The women would come out to the truck with whatever they had that could hold milk, and my family gave the milk away for free. My papa always made sure to mention at the end of that story that once the depression ended, many of those people had kept track of the milk they took and paid the family back for it. Papa uh, said our family hadn't kept track. He was always humbled by the depth of human goodness. I just think that's such a beautiful story. And um, it shows that, yeah, cows, they don't take a break. They have to be milked every day. And if you had nowhere for that milk to go, you know, we know in the dairy episode from last season that some farmers had to dump their milk. But I really love that the milk that their family produced during the Great Depression went to feed poor, hungry people. And I just love that, that they kept track and paid the family back. Once times were better in World War II, there was a lot more job opportunities. Anyway, really beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Karen. Well, that is the end of season two. I do hope you enjoyed this episode and all the previous episodes. And I just wanted to tell you that this podcast has reached over 5,500 downloads. And that, of course, would not be possible without you, my listeners. So thank you so, so much for tuning in to this podcast and for supporting this work that I do here. Like I said before, I will be active on Instagram and Facebook. So, you know, you can see what I'm up to, what kind of ration cooking I'm doing in the midst of all my writing and scribblings. And I hope you will join me again when I um, come back with season three. I've got some really fun stuff planned and 
Especially keep an eye out for episode one of season three, which is set to air July 1st. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that episode. You can follow me on Instagram by searching for Victory Kitchen Podcast. And on Facebook, it's also Victory Kitchen Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.